Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for joining us today. If you are not familiar with us, we are an apologetics-based podcast, and we also have an awesome website called apologetics.org. We teach you how to share and defend the gospel. Uh, Dr. Woodward, how are you doing today? Well, I am just doing peachy keen. It's a little bit rainy down here in Tampa Bay in Florida, but uh, the students are back here at Trinity College. We're having a great time studying apologetics in one of my courses and the life of Christ in another course. And uh, we're actually reading in one of my courses the, the classic. It's an amazing uh, book of, of all books uh, besides the Bible. It's uh, Pascal's book which is spelled in English like it would be pronounced Pensees, but actually the, the French, I'm told by those who know, is Pensee. Uh, and so that it means thoughts in French. And so the students who are reading Pascal's book, Pensee, are just blown away. They just said they've never read such an amazing book in their entire life. So other than the Bible, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we're, yeah. ha- we're having a grand time. So how are you, Nick? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Actually, we just did a, uh, a thing with our youth group last night. We kind of went over First Peter 3.15, and we talked about the setting of it and everything, but it, it was really good. Awesome. Well, you know, First Peter 3.15 is just the classic uh, Great Commission for apologetics. I mean, there's the Great Commission to make disciples, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts 1.8. And I say to my students when we're studying apologetics, there's another Great Commission, and that's the commission to defend our faith, but it begins by setting apart Christ as Lord. And I'm sure you pointed that out to your students when you were yes, going over that. Yes, absolutely. It's, ama- it's an amazing verse, isn't it? It really is, and if you don't start with that, everything that follows is pointless, because if you don't truly believe, then you can't mm-hmm. expect to convince anybody else either. Exactly. I was on the phone earlier today with some of the leaders at the Christian Union at Princeton University, and as I'm looking forward to the 50th reunion, I'm going to be going back, uh, Lord willing, in May. And the uh, the students, uh, of course, that are seniors, they get to experience this crazy, wonderful time. A lot of celebration, a lot of seminars, some concerts, uh, you know, panel discussions. You know, these um, some of the most famous uh, scholars in the world are gathering to share their latest findings. But what I thought was really amazing was when she said, you know, we find our students who are working with at Princeton University, um, they, they love apologetics, but they're, they're really getting it that the ultimate evidence is their own lives that has been changed by Christ. And I think that we would say, like, a hearty amen to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we get to live and experience Christ, and we get to see, I know you love to talk about this, we get to see the transformation that is brought about uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit, something that we couldn't do on our own. Exactly. In other words, it's genuine. It's real. It's not pseudo. You know, the, the, I love the Greek uh, preposition, pseudo. Of course, there's the silent P, so some people, if they don't know better, might p- say pseudo, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, use, we'll use the standard English pronunciation. But I, I find it fascinating, and I'd like to, this is going to be a pseudo program. I think um, that, that may have shocked you when I first mentioned it, right? I think you laughed or something. You were awkward. 
Uh, yeah. It's an awkward moment. It's like a pseudo program. That means where it's not going to be a real program. That means we're not going to really tape it and air it. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. I love your reaction. But this is a genuine program about the the prefix pseudo and how it has been applied sometimes, you know, properly at times, but sometimes impro- very frequently improperly, especially when attacks come at intelligent design or the whole idea of creation by a supernatural, eternally existing, above space and time, God, who brought about the entire universe from nothing, and not only did that, but uh, placed within it this brilliant set of qualities and quantities, these fine-tuned parameters, and even more than that, then embedded within it the code that we find in DNA that allows this incredibly complex organism called a human being to reproduce and then to make little human beings who grew up to be adult and, you know, the next generation of human beings. And then, of course, the other two million or so species beyond that around us. I mean, it's just amazing, you know, when, when you see this, um, the truth of creation, but then often advocates of Darwinian theory or just, you know, mechanistic other theories, there's new theories being proposed now that Darwinian um, explanations are failing horribly. And, and people step up and say, well, we think this other mechanistic, um, you know, approach, this, this understanding of the laws of physics and just blind chance will, will take the place of Darwinism. Good luck with that. But they will then turn around and say, now, creation, that's pseudoscience or intelligent mm-hmm. design. That's a pseudoscientific uh, explanation. And even Wikipedia as much as I may admit that on occasion I do sneak in and use Wikipedia to look up some uh, abstract uh, truth or some minor detail of of a a lecture area I'm dealing with, I I try to not ever send people there for science uh, summaries or, you know, information. Don't use it as an online encyclopedia, especially when it comes to Darwinism and design, because there opening comment about any design advocate, book, website, any enterprise whatsoever about intelligent design, they will call it pseudoscientific. So if you don't know any better, if you haven't had a chance to research this whole area, uh, you are told officially by the people in the know, you know, Wikipedia, that Darwinian theory is absolutely true, it's fact, and pseudoscience, is the where, that's where you get into intelligent design or other theories and uh, that are classed with it. And I think that is so rhetorically, it's not surprising, as a, as a trick of rhetoric, as a trick of like verbal persuasion, okay, they're just sticking in a needle, or you might even say uh, sticking in a, a, a sword, trying to literally just clog, get us out of the running, just move, remove us from the race uh, for consideration. So, but I think the pseudo-preposition is genuinely working on one kind of gene that we're, and so we're moving from pseudoscience now to um, this other concept of a pseudogene. Now, Nick, I think you may have heard me mention once in a while, I don't think we've, we've covered this recently at all, but I think you've heard me mention pseudogenes as an argument against design. I, yeah, so somewhere I, maybe maybe about a year or two ago. It, it's something right? like that. I, I'm I'm familiar with the term and I'm vaguely familiar with the concept, but I'm I'm definitely not an expert. Okay, well, um, I'm I'm not a super you know 
nationally ranked expert, but I have done a lot of research on this recently, and so I'd like to bring a crash course update on pseudogenes and really use it to confront a claim that came uh, in a YouTube video, and you can actually look this up. Uh, there's a magnificent report that just came out just a few days ago on our favorite website for looking up anything on science, and it's called evolutionnews.org. And we reference this from time to time, evolutionnews.org. And let me, as before I jump into their help, helpful material on pseudogenes, let me mention that just this coming week on that same web platform is going to be the second season of science uprising videos. These are short videos, usually in the neighborhood of eight or ten minutes, and they give a fantastic overview of a clash point, um, you might say as a, as a battle or confrontation point in the area of origins. And Science Uprising uses a very clever genre where all of a sudden you're seeing some people relax with a bowl of popcorn, they're watching a video, and it's going in the direction of evolution. All of a sudden there's a zap of static. You know, the, the screen kind of goes bonkers. And all of a sudden, this guy in a mask comes in and says, this is science uprising. In other words, he's taking control of your video so that he can break through the pablum that is being fed with the truth that has been arising from the actual factual study of origins. So the genre, the way they do science uprising videos is, is fabulous. And like I say, they had a year ago in the height of the COVID situation, they brought up the first a, a series of Science Uprising videos. So if you go to YouTube, just put in Science Uprising, you can see the whole folder uploaded by Evolution News for the benefit of humanity. Well, so season two coming September 15th, look for it, and you can actually go to evolutionnews.org and just click on their connective connection points to see each one of those weekly new science uprising. So that's my commercial for that. Now back to pseudogenes. Pseudogenes are described that way. Pseudogenes would be false genes, which means to the evolutionists, they're broken genes. They're junky genes. They're copies of DNA that used to be way back in evolutionary history, functional genes, but then they got glitched through the long march of uh, time and random uh, you know, glitches, random modifications, mutations creeping into the DNA, some copies of genes got messed up. You know, my, my grandkids um, love to sing this um, VBS song, you know, where about sin messed everything up, everything up, sin messed everything up, everything up. I can hear them singing it in our car. And that's what, of course, time messes DNA. You can say, time messes everything up in your DNA. Time messes everything up in your DNA. There is a genetic entropy. There is a fact of degrading of our DNA. But those who study pseudogenes, and again, pseudogenes are a class of genes that were described originally as false, that is broken, that is non-functional. These pseudogenes that were originally discovered in the 1980s and more intensively researched and more information was gathered in the 1990s, they became the trump card. They became like the winning argument for evolutionists. 
because it looks like, at, at a first glance, pseudo or false genes aren't really functional. They're relics of a long evolutionary history, and they refute intelligent desire. Like, why would God make, if he made all this DNA wonderfully beautiful, you know, if you believe in recent creation, I, I hold to a more recent creation picture, even if you believe in the progressive creation view of, of some of our friends in the intelligent design movement, they have a longer timeline, but they still refute Darwinian theory and, and um, strongly based on the evidence point to design. So whether your time frame is like, you know, these uh, reptiles and dinosaurs are only in, let's say, 10,000 years ago, or whether you go back hundreds of millions of years ago, either way, it doesn't seem to make sense that God would create a whole set of false genes that are like a regular gene, but they have no function. And, and we see them just kind of tucked away doing nothing. So they were like the, the cornerstone of the argument against design that really became wildly popular in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Some people would say this is the ultimate nail in the coffin of design. And many of our people were saying, as they said about all junk DNA, hold on, not so fast. We may have called these, scientists may have put the label on these genes prematurely, calling them pseudogenes. And so let's see if they have a function. Well, one by one by one, these so-called pseudogenes were found not to be non-functional. And, and if you're speaking English, if you have two nots, that makes it a yes. So if they're not non-functional, that means that they are functional. And this was cataloged very well by some writings by the Smithsonian expert Sternberg, Richard Sternberg. Some of you have seen him being interviewed in the uh, documentary film Expelled. Richard Sternberg did some of the most important work on the functionality of pseudogenes. You say, wait a minute. How can bro broken genes be functional? Well, this is part of the brilliant design of our Creator God. If you have a gene that's making a copy of a protein, and the, the cells are going to be reacting with that protein as it's being functional, you know, and the copies of that protein are being made from the actual gene, from the blueprint. If you have a blueprint of something that looks like the same protein and acts like it but isn't the same protein, then the chemical substances in your body might be pulled to it as a decoy. And so that decoy of a similar but just slightly different copy of the protein can be useful to downregulate the, the prevalence of the protein that's interacting with it. In other words, the chemical substance in your cell, instead of going to the genuine real McCoy, it goes to the pseudo protein or in some cases the pseudo-RNA copied from the pseudo-gene. In some cases it just goes directly to the pseudo-gene itself. But all three of those um, have function, and this is not just one or two or five or ten, literally dozens upon dozens, and potentially the vast majority of pseudo-genes are found now to have function. Now this this collides with the claim that design is pseudoscience, that we're just based on this kind of mythical idea of a creator God. No, uh, Dawkins even himself, Richard Dawkins, in the video that is referenced, and uh, there's an article written by Casey Luskin, if you want to look this up, 
It says pseudogenes aren't non-functional relics that refute intelligent design. And uh, this article, which just came out this past week, uh, actually references and has a link to the Richard Dawkins video. And Richard Dawkins says, he says that the genetic data, you know, points to pseudogenes as, as like this ultimate proof against a creation or a design universe. He claims, quote, they don't do anything, that is the pseudogenes, but are vestigial relics of genes that once did something. He even says in one of his other publications, pseudogenes, quote, are never transcribed or translated. They might as well not exist as far as the animal's welfare is concerned. So this is a statement of the supreme pontiff, if you will, the pope of atheism today claiming erroneously uh, this is not true at all and he should know better Dawkins says that pseudogenes are never transcribed or translated that's absolutely false and it's been known for over 20 years to be false so here are some of the things that pseudogenes can do okay we got a few minutes left let me give you a, a, just kind of an array a menu of actual functions that a pseudogene which is a copy or a near copy of an original gene, but it has some differences. And I could go into those if we had time, if we had a Q&A opportunity. But they can actually make RNA transcripts that are useful at the level of RNA. RNA is like a Xerox copy, like a copy you make out of a copy machine. They also make functional proteins. And also, thirdly, they can perform functions without even producing any transcript. Uh, there was a, a secular um, paper that was found, uh, you know, it was just came out a few years back in Science Signaling Journal. And they said, quote, pseudogenes have long been dismissed as junk DNA. But then they pointed out that new studies have shown that, and I'm quoting from this article, the DNA of a pseudogene the RNA transcribed from a pseudogene or the protein translated, that is produced from a pseudogene, can have multiple diverse functions. And these functions can affect not only the parental genes, that is the gene that originally is related to the pseudogene, but it can also up, you know, modulate, you know, up control or down control unrelated genes. And so the conclusion says, um, pseudogenes have emerged as a previously unappreciated class of, get this, sophisticated modulators. That means sophisticated control knobs, sophisticated on-off switches of gene expression. Now, to me, this is a breakthrough, and it's not just an isolated breakthrough. Another journal paper agrees that, quote, pseudogenes have long been labeled as junk DNA uh, or failed copies of genes that arise during the evolution of genomes. However, this is their, their turning point where they're discovering that they're wrong. However, recent results are challenging this description. Indeed, some pseudogenes appear to harbor the potential to regulate their protein-coding cousins. Okay, and so if I see, let's say, the gene to produce the flavor of chocolate. 
Now, Nick, I've never asked you if you like uh, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, or if you're not a chocoholic at all. Um, I I really like milk chocolate. My wife likes dark chocolate. Okay, well then I, I'm I'm with you, and and I can appreciate your wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so my wife and I are milk chocolate. Uh, we have some dear friends uh, that we gather with to sometimes look at old movies, and they are all dark chocolate. So I, I, I just look at them and shake my head and I just say, God has created us all different. And so, but the, the let's say that there's a gene that produces the, the wonderful, fragrant, and delicious, yummy taste of chocolate. Now, you want a certain amount of chocolate in a cell, but not too much. So a cell sometimes will have a, a whole sequence where the original chocolate molecule is linked up with another molecule, which links up with another molecule, which then puts it in its final form. So you call it my, my, that chocolate cascade. But then you realize that if you get too much of this chocolate cascade, it will explode and the cell will burst. And therefore, you won't have any chocolate. So you got to modulate it. you got to control it. Well, God in his brilliance, I'm just giving you an example, has produced a pseudo-chocolate gene. So that when, when the process has this little feedback, it's getting a little heavy. Okay, we're going 80 miles an hour. Now we're going 90 miles an hour. And you know your engine can only go 110 until it overheats. And so as soon as the chocolate production reaches 100 miles an hour, there's an automatic feedback switch that says, okay, produce the pseudo-chocolate. And all of a sudden, the DNA is opened up for that pseudo-chocolate gene. And, and, soon, and pretty soon, this, this protein, this pseudo-chocolate protein is popping out and it's attracting the reactors, and so it, it, it scales it back to a process that is going to be just fine and it will not overheat or overproduce or burst open and kill the cell. I don't know if that makes sense, but the pseudo-chocolate gene produces a pseudo-protein gene, which then down, it's like a decoy. It's like when we would build decoy uh, tanks or planes on the ground to fool the Germans, and they would go after the decoys. And they realize, uh-oh, those are not real planes. Those are not real tanks. They're just mock-ups. They're just made of paper or cardboard. And so that, that, was, that was a purpose. So sometimes nature has its own decoy proteins to, to modulate, to control, to scale back a process to the, to the rate it needs to proceed. That's maybe, my, that's maybe my weird example of the day. But I'm trying to show to just echo what it said in a 2012 paper less than 10 years ago. RNA, get this, RNA biology said, quote, pseudogenes were long considered as genomic DNA. But now, again, quote, pseudogene regulation is widespread in eukaryotes. Eukaryotes means animals, plants, anything above the level of a bacterial a cell. That means almost all life above those cute little bacteria that play such an important role in our gut or any other kind of simple single-celled animal uh, bacterial creation of God. Everything above that has pseudogenes working, toiling brilliantly above that level of, pro of the bacterial life forms. Everywhere you look, eukaryotes, all plants and animals have pseudogenes doing their work brilliantly and magnificently. They are not junk DNA. They're the best of the best of God's creation of DNA. So I think we can just thank God for the brilliant creation of even these cute little decoys that do their job as pseudogenes.
Absolutely, and I, I think I'm just so amazed that even though these things can now be scientifically verified, that once we what we once thought was true about genes is not true, uh, you hardly see anybody taking this back, whether it's Dawkins or, or big universities or whatever it may be. You hardly see them saying, well, we were wrong about this, and this is the way it actually is. They'd rather just, I think, sweep it under the rug. But uh, it really is amazing what God does in every single cell of every one of our bodies, um, and that is one of the many, many reasons that we praise and worship him. So if you have any questions, send us an email at information at apologetics.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida, and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in the universe next door.